Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Start the Conversation, a panel discussion on race and equality. I'm Monica Pearson, your host for today, and we have a COVID set up. That's why we have the plexiglass, and we're trying to make sure we maintain our distance, and we were wearing our mask until we came on the air. As I prepared for today's show, a song kept coming into my mind, guys. The 1970s hit by The Temptations. It's called Ball of Confusion. The refrain goes, that's what the world is today. Hey, hey. <laughs> now, some of the lyrics are so timely. I quote, well, the only person talking about love, thy neighbor is the preacher. Segregation, determination, demonstration, integration, aggravation, humiliation, obligation to my nation. It's a ball of confusion. A distinguished panel is here today to have an honest positive, respectful, open-minded, and productive discussion about that ball of confusion in terms of current events that all center around inequality and racism. But we also have to provide solutions. And we have to lead that conversation with others. Thank you for joining us, those of you listening live on Business Radio X and those of you watching live on YouTube. Our panel today includes an Atlanta sports icon, a well-known and followed sports reporter, an anchor, a highly successful Atlanta business leader, and of course, a well-respected leader in law enforcement who might get beat up a little bit today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for it. Out of love. <laughs> but before we introduce them, you need to meet Dan Miller. Now, Mr. Miller is with the financial services firm, Wealth Horizon, why did you decide to sponsor this? Well, Monica, first I want to just thank you and each of our esteemed panelists for agreeing to participate and contribute to what I am sure will be a very meaningful conversation. Uh, my wife and business partner, Jerry, and I have lived in the city for over 40 years, and we love the city, we love our community, and like many others, we've been deeply disturbed by many of the recent of incidents and events surrounding racial tensions. And, uh, you know, we tried to figure out what we could do to posit positively make a difference. And we felt inspired to create this forum, promoting honest and respectful dialogue. It seems too often one person cannot even comprehend how someone else can feel totally differently. And, uh, that's the benefit of sports, I think, is that uh, sports often unite us and provide a, a bridge to the gap that's otherwise reflected in society. And um, so we know that while these conversations can be difficult and at times uncomfortable, we believe that discussion is the way to begin a path to a deeper understanding. That is wonderful. And this is not just going to be the first and last you're going to continue them that's right this is not a one-off uh we think it's very important that this be an ongoing conversation so we will be doing quarterly broadcasts with different panelists uh, different people different perspectives and we will continue the conversation well mr miller all i can say is thank you for caring and sharing because these conversations need to be had. And hopefully when people hear what's talked about today, they'll have conversations with other people That's in their right. homes, their businesses, and their neighborhoods. That's what we hope. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Okay, now to the main event, our panel of distinguished speakers. I am introducing them in alphabetical order. However, one of them could not be with us today, and that's, you know, NBA star Dominique Wilkins. Mm -hmm. You know what happens when you have family and family says we're going on vacation? You got to go. <laughs> so he could not be here. But we are blessed that we have, like, uh, Hallmark cards. When you want to send the very best, you send for Sam Crenshaw. Yes. Sam Crenshaw, when it comes to sports, there's nobody else like him. He's one of the hardest working people in sports. On TV, you can see him on CW69. He also freelances for Georgia Public Broadcasting, the city of Atlanta, Intercom, and on radio, he is the weekend morning host on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game, the wonderful Sam Crenshaw. Fantastic. And just great to be here with you. Tennis clap. Tennis, tennis clap. Tennis clap. Tennis clap. Tennis clap. Because he's really a ten uh, ooh, he, ferocious on the court. You don't want to see her. <laughs> Monica's and when when she beats you, she's talking trash at you uh -oh. at the same time. I still I, owe I, you, Sam, that. from that uh, charity <laughs> <Right>. event. <laughs> okay, so here's who's saying he mm. still owes Sam from the charity event. That's Brian Jordan. I'm doing these guys in alphabetical order by their last names. Now, Brian is an incredible athlete, having made his professional mark in both baseball and football. He was an all-star player with the Atlanta Braves and an all-pro selection with the Atlanta Falcons. He took his knowledge from the field to the media box as an Emmy award-winning sports analyst for Fox Sports South. He's also a philanthropist, which I love, and that's through his Brian Jordan Foundation. And what surprised me, I didn't know you had written two children's books. Oh, Monica, it's four children's books Four now? now? Yes. <laughs> yes, I just came out with my first chapter book, so I'm excited, and uh, kids love it. Uh, I, I really love it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I And next, here comes the man. James D. McClure, Deputy Police Chief of the Gwinnett County Police Department. He joined the department 34 years ago. You don't look like you're much over 34. 24. 24. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I like all right, it. All right. All right. I like that math. He served as commander of criminal investigation, commander of the Office of Professional Standards, chief of staff, and tactical team leader. Now, what most people don't realize about Gwinnett County is it is the second most populous county in Metro Atlanta, but it's also the most diverse. 25% of the people who live in Gwinnett County are foreign-born. So that means you really have a lot on your hands. And, and oh, did I tell you? Marine Corps. Hoorah! Yeah. That's right. Hoorah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So once again, thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here and uh, to share some ideas and to learn as well. So thank you all. Thank you. And last but not least, my buddy, Dr. Bernie Mullen, founder and chairman. Actually, all these guys are my buddies. Yes. I'm just meeting J.D. for the first time, but the other three I know real well. When Bernie first came to Atlanta, I interviewed him and his wonderful wife, Valerie. Now, Bernie is founder and chairman of the Aspire Group. It, that group helps sports organizations stay in the game by showing them how to increase revenue, profit, attendance, and value. 
Before founding his company, Bernie was president and CEO of the Atlanta Spirit, the you know who they are, the former owners of the Atlanta Hawks, the Thrashers, the ice hockey team, and Phillips Arena. Now, what I learned is that under Bernie's leadership, the Hawks' opening operating losses were reduced by 80% over 40 year, uh, four, four years. years, four years, <laughs> from 2004 to 2008. 80% you reduced? Yeah. Whew. And yeah. the we need to put you in government and <laughs> and the not the post office not not the post office not right now wow that's a whole nother conversation we're not getting into that today and he's also during that time period the Thrashers won their division Dr Bernie Mullins is here so let's get busy talking thank you so uh, James Wright was just named the first black team president in the NFL history, 100 years of NFL history. Now, he's going to be heading the Washington Football Organization, which used to be called the Washington Redskins. They're still trying to figure out what they're going to be called. He's only 38 years old. He also played for the Falcons at a short time, Cardinals and the Browns. But he does have an MBA. But he's 38. Why this major change right now? in football putting a black man in charge of this huge and one of the most prosperous well-known red organizations as the redskins well i can i can start that conversation off and uh right now the redskins are in shambles uh with the whole redskin uh identity uh and and the general manager there no one you know not the general manager but the owner uh really has a problem uh and and it's causing the football organization to be in an array. And uh, for them, it's a great move uh, to bring an African-American in, especially being so young. You, you look around sports, all sports, they're getting younger and younger. So to have an NBA, uh, to be the face of the Redskins, I think that's a smart move. And, you know, Bernie, it's all about business. And, you know, it's going to give them a good look moving forward as they continue to f figure out their identity. So, Bernie, when you look at that, the, the reality is they're taking a chance, but could he be the sacrificial lamb? Um, he could, but I don't think so. I, I think the first thing I would say is about time. About time, you know. Um, I remember when I came from being a university professor in 86 to be the senior VP of the Pirates, and the, the nastiest critic in the Pittsburgh paper wrote, um, the baseball people have failed running this organization, the business people have failed, well, let's try an academic. Can't get any worse. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, I think that without a shadow of a doubt, we need more minority leadership across all the sports. I think it's been a slow progression. It's nowhere near as fast as it should be, and it needs to be. But I think it's a wonderful step. And clearly the, the main job there is whether it's the Red Wolves or the Red Whatevers, <laughs> which are all the rumors uh, of what the um, Redskins are going to be going forward. I think that's the major thing is rebuild the brand, rebuild the image. And certainly the single biggest message there is your, um, your name of your team was offensive to Native Americans and therefore had to go. And you shouldn't have ignored it for as long as you did. Yeah. So as a sports reporter, when you, you see this, do you have a certain amount of angst? I mean, I think it's all part of this, of this movement. 
that is going on around this country. Monica, you and I are old enough to remember the movement of the 60s. I was too young to be out and be actually a part of it, but it was around me, being a native of Birmingham, Alabama. And I, to me, that's it. That movement had a lot of things going for it. This movement has some of that, plus the diversity, and they got money behind it. There's some sponsors that said, "Don't you know, we want, we want to withdraw, being involved with the Washington team. So this movement got some money behind it. And, that's, and, that, that, and that does make a difference, we've yeah. seen. So that's, that's all a part of what we're seeing right now. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited by what I'm seeing from this movement. But you know, I can remember when Hank Aaron was about to break Babe Ruth's record. He got hate calls and letters and threats to his life. Um, and now all of a sudden you're seeing this shift to we want more African-Americans in particular offices but you, as you said, it's a team that right now is struggling. So when do we get to be a part of a winning team? Well, that's a tough question. Uh, you know, this is a fight that's been going on for a long time, uh, especially if you're talking about Major League Baseball. Uh, I always tell everybody, Jackie Robinson is, is, is rolling over in his grave right now, mm-hmm. uh, the direction of where baseball is going now. And it's, it's upsetting for me as an African-American athlete and who admired and respected. And one of my greatest heroes is Hank Aaron and be able to have conversation with him often uh, to see where Major League Baseball is now with 7% African-Americans. Uh, it's, it's mind-boggling because I see all the African-American athletes out there that's stuck in minor leagues. They don't get that opportunity to be a bench player at the Major League level. And from when I played the game in the 2000s and uh, 90s, we had 12, 11 African-Americans on a team. And now you may have one on a major league team today. Uh, so it is a problem why? that needs to be addressed. Well, I can tell you why. Uh, major League Baseball, they do a great job trying to uni- make baseball universal. Uh, and they made a commitment to the Latin American Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, where they set up all these academies. And for me, I'm not knocking it at all. I think it's a great opportunity, and they really do a great job educating those kids, preparing them to come to the United States. But it's a cheaper option for Major League Baseball to make this push. Well, I'm saying we have so many inner-city kids who would love the opportunity to be provided with everything and educated to play this great game of baseball, but they're investing that money over in Latin America and not investing that same money here in the United States. So why? Now you see the shift where it was 37% African-American, 40% when I played, and only seven Latin American. Now it's reversed. And that's because Major League Baseball is doing a great job promoting the game in Latin America, but not doing the same job here in the United States. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the Brian stats are very similar. I started in baseball in 85 as a consultant, 86 as a full-time employee with the Pirates. You know, we, um, within the first month that I was on the job, Al Campanis, the GM at Dodgers, went on Nightline and said, quote, blacks don't have the necessities to be managers in baseball. Oof. And all hell broke loose, you know. And so the next month, I'm in meeting after meeting, NAACP, Rainbow Coalition, you can imagine. And um, 
And we made the commitment as the Pirates organization. We had an all-black team on the field, but we had, I think, two minorities in our front office staff. There was a secretary and a, and a filing clerk. I mean, it was disgraceful. And so we totally changed. I went on the committee that was headed by Clifford Alexander, who was the highest-ranking black in the U.S. Army. Uh, when LBJ was president, Clifford Alexander wrote the civil rights legislation. Most people don't know that. His partner was Janet Hill, Grant's mom. Yeah. Yale Law School, real dummy. Great. I mean, just <laughs> She's ama- awesome. <laughs> just, they were just amazing people to work with, and I was privileged to be a fly on the wall and learn. And, and within a year, we turned the complexion, literally, and the culture of our organization uh, around. And we started things like RBI. We didn't. The National League did. Bill White, you know, who was an African-American, first African-American president mm-hmm. of the National League, he started RBI, Return Baseball to the Inner City. I think that one of the things that's very often not spoken about is an an Obama prior to his presidency and his early campaigns made fatherhood in the black community a big issue. And he got pounded. I mean, even as a black, our first black president, he got pounded by some of the, uh, you know, the academic and intellectual black community. And, you know, I'm not here to debate it. I'm going to tell you from a baseball point of view, it was a massive problem, Monica. There were not the African-American men in the communities that were coaching, leading, and developing baseball programs. Mm-hmm. I think the saddest thing from my experience of 10 years with three major league teams was that the integration of the major leagues with Jackie Robinson was the death of the Negro Leagues, as we all know. Mm-hmm. And we rebuilt the Homestead Grays ballpark as one of our out, uh, outreach efforts to try and get more, um, you know, obviously inner city African-American kids in the Pittsburgh area playing baseball. And because they were the last Negro League World Series champions. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of things, but but the effort, it was tough because there wasn't the infrastructure of the uncles or the dads coaching in there. And so I don't, I mean, to Brian's point, you know, we put a lot of money, but I don't know that we did the right thing. I don't know that we got the role models. And he would probably know better and just why that part failed. Right. And just to add to that, Bernie, uh, you know, you try to put a Band-Aid on it, which is my frustration with Major League Baseball teams. Yeah. Uh, because every team is different, as we know. They run their organizations different. Uh, some are more involved in the community than others. But to put money into an RBI program, to put a Band-Aid on it, just to say, well, we're helping the inner community, does not help the inner city community you have to take control of those programs with so many former athletes that are involved in helping inner city kids this is a perfect opportunity for major league baseball to use their former players to run these programs and make sure these kids go in the right direction but no that's not the case they will donate a million dollars to rbi program and say okay we're done and now what do you think is going to happen they're going to refurbish the fields, and in five years with no direction, it's going right back down the opposite way. So, you know, I, I get frustrated and upset when I see teams talk about the RBI program when they have academies in other countries changing kids' lives. Uh, Sam, yeah, I see you chomping yeah, at the bit. Yeah, because I know he's done some great things. He's been invested also uh, with the, the uh, Carver YMCA down in yes. the city of Atlanta. 
to provide a field, and it's one thing to provide adequate playing field for the young people to, to play on. But there's an organization I know down in the city, I don't know about the, around the rest of the area, called LEAD, that gets involved with young people. And uh, CJ, who used CJ to be. CJ Stewart. Yeah. I think they're doing a remarkable thing, and they do something to bring you in each year called a Safe at Home game, which is a game where they get young people from the inner city to play a baseball game against police officers, right. and there are no umpires <laughs> in the game. So there's, so there's trust. Right. You know, are you going to be fair to me? Are you going to call a, a, a ball a ball a strike a strike? If I'm if I get to the base first, are you going to call me safer mm -hmm. out? Um, things like that that can help sports to foster a better relationship with law enforcement. I don't know what what game y'all play out here in Gwinnett. I don't know if y'all baseball players or softball players or what y'all play, but I'm just saying that's something that they do down in the city, and I think that's a remarkable game. And Georgia Tech usually volunteers their playing facility yes. for them to play this game every year. And I think it's a remarkable thing that we're doing in Atlanta for baseball. And by the way, you, you know, if, if, if CJ's wife, Kelly, was here, she would argue big time that black boys in the city of Atlanta are playing baseball. And they're taking them through that program, at least getting them to graduate and go off to college. And we're starting to see an uptick of some players come from my area uh, playing in the majors right now. They're young, um, but why shouldn't it be here? I think because of what you did and what the Braves have done down through the years in this area, uh, the rebirth of the black baseball players should come from Atlanta. So that I'm would be to that. something. Well, yeah. that moves us into how sports becomes a way of keeping kids out of trouble, and it becomes a way of preparing them for, which the stewards do, to go to college. So I'm going to come over to you, Chief. What are you all doing in Gwinnett County to foster a relationship between police and kids to keep them off the streets and out of trouble? So first, a great question. Um, over the last 20 years in law enforcement, specifically in Gwinnett County, we've really made a commitment to community relations. Um, so I was the precinct commander at our central precinct, which is Gwinnett Place Mall area, Duluth. Um, and I remember you know, getting a set of keys to the precinct and, and beginning to lay out my plan for how the operation was gonna run. Um, and I'm fortunate to have other commanders who instead of getting involved in it. now granted n never forget our first responsibility is going to be to reduce crime and keep our property safe but equally important the emphasis on our relationship with the community so specifically as it relates to young people um, we have started a youth police academy and so that's for our middle school age and high school age kids in the summer to come to the police academy and essentially learn the what it's like to be a police officer, to look at our processes, to understand why it is that we do, you know, certain things. So that has been our single uh, biggest, um, I would say, program that we've implemented with our young kids. But I will tell you, there's a lot more room to go. And speaking of athletics, currently we don't have an athletic mechanism within the police department, um, you know, folks. Which is who, the problem. Yeah. Which is the problem. Well, okay. it, it is a problem. And but that's what these discussions are for. Mm -hmm. um, just this week, I've talked to a retired sergeant, Tony Irvin, uh, who worked for us for over 25 years, who said, hey, I've got an idea, let's get Powell involved. So I, I, I agree with you, it is a problem, and the generation that you could argue is most important that we need to reach is, is young people. So um, I talked to the chief, Chief West, um, that's, that's our platform is to get involved specifically with athletics in the police department. And I think once we come out of uh, the pandemic, I think at least within our agency, you'll see that implemented. So I'll look to get contacts with Brian and Sam 
and see what we can do. I can do. tell you something that, that, that I actually was a, was a part of, if I, if I may. Yeah. Uh, that, that, was, that was here in Gwinnett and um, over, at, over in the Meadow Creek area. Okay. And that's a very diverse area. you got Absolutely. You know, everything that goes to that school. And uh, one of the largest populations for high school in the state of Georgia, um, through USTA, and USTA Georgia wanted to do something with our diversity department to encourage more of the Latino community to participate in tennis. Sure. And we went there and uh, we got some middle school and some of the ninth graders to come out and just get in, inside the gym with us. And uh, the athletic director was thrilled. The athletic director of Meadow Creek was thrilled because he's seen some seeds. Maybe some of those young people will start a tennis club in middle school and be able to play on the high school team when they get to high school. Yes. Um, so he was really excited about it, and it was something that USTA Georgia really wanted to target, and we were part of that. So, I, you know, you know the athletic director. Now I get you the athletic director. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know if any of y'all play tennis or not. but, that, but and, and I say that because <laughs> this happens down in Atlanta. There's something called uh, Serve and Connect, uh, formerly known as Volley Against Violence, that we had through uh, USTA Atlanta. We would have it at Washington Park every Friday night. Um, kids from that area, from the west side of town, with officers who patrol that area. So everybody knows each yes. other already. They see them going to school and whatnot, so everybody's comfortable. The kids come out, they climb all over the officers. They're there in their dark uniforms and out in the court sweating. Um, but, but we have fun. Yeah. And I like to call it uh, kids, uh, kids, cops, tennis, and pizza. Because <laughs> after we got through, get through playing, they learn a new word, and we ever sit down and have pizza together. Uh, but that's a small thing. And why it doesn't happen in other places around the area, why it doesn't happen around the metro area, I do not know. I'm over here like I'm ready to this is a jump rope going on. I'm ready to <laughs> jump in. I can't wait to jump in. But you know, I, I think and I don't know if you guys heard Doc Rivers speak on this same issue. Uh me growing up, just like Doc Rivers, his dad was a police officer. His dad coached kids in the community. I grew up in a community where the police were involved. They coached us. They gave kids second chances by saying, hey, you come play for me at this recreation center. I'll let you off this time, but if it happens again, it starts very, very young because the image of police officers today are not the same as when Doc Rivers and myself growing up. We ran to police officers because they had such a positive image. I wanted to be a police officer, but today, because of what's gone on around the world, they're running from the police officers if they see them. So I have this vision to where we have police officers in this PAL programs. You know, everybody's talking about defunding the police. Are they crazy? You don't defund the police, you redirect those funds yes. into where it's gonna help grow relationships with young kids and police officers because we have to save that generation first to correct anything as we get older. So why not look at Gwinnett County and all these other counties and build these facilities where kids are allowed to play and police officers are there to coach along with former athletes, along with the great coaches in that community already to allow the police officers free membership to work out, to be there, to intermingle with those kids every day I guarantee you crime will be lower. And it's something that nobody's really talking about. And this is something, Bernie, that to me, the Braves, the Falcons, the, the United, should all come together along with yes. corporations and say, let's build these facilities here and let's make a difference. If change is gonna happen, 
it's a bigger conversation among these big corporations who have the money to make it happen. And we will see crime go down. These younger kids grow up respecting people because it is a different world out there today when you walk and talk to these younger kids. It's just no respect. Well, it's because of what, um, what they see, what right. policing is like. And, and I look at President Obama's task force uh, for 21st century policing, and just what Brian's talking about is getting involved, doing community policing. But there's more to it. Do, do you know about the, and I'm sure you do, the eight that can't wait that many um, police departments did not embrace, and many police chiefs said, I never read it and not going to read it because it came out of President Obama. So for Gwinnett County Police, and again, the thing I have to make sure that I make clear is I can't speak for all agencies. I can only speak to how we do business here. And I'm very, very proud of our agency, no question about it. Um, we have learned, right, and we continue to learn. And, and again, that's what the benefit of, of, of all our conversations and be willing to come to the table is we learn and change our processes as far as uh, the president's task force and the six pillars within that program we adhere to uh, the camp the eight can't wait we looked at every single uh, one of those requests for instance banning a chokehold we we outlawed chokeholds 25 years ago right so you know we definitely go in open-minded with, with these things and and that 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 commission the task force that that found um, uh, within that um, study was phenomenal if people just take the, the, the time to read it. If you get politics involved, to your point, um, Monica, where folks are worrying about which administration incorporated, then it's it's a lost cause. The bottom line is that the material they put out was phenomenal. And, uh, you know, if, if I think if a police chief takes that tact, that I'm not going to read it because it came from this particular administration, then they truly don't even need to be in that position. But it did happen. Concerned. I want to share with, you know, the, the listeners and viewers what they are. It's like ban chokeholds and strongholds, require de-escalation, require warning before shooting, exhaust all other means before shooting, duty to intervene. And that's what we saw a huge lack mm -hmm. of. Accountability. Yeah, uh, accountability. Right. And then ban shooting at moving vehicles, require use of force continuum, and require comprehensive reporting. You all are doing that. But, again, every day you still see officers doing things that they shouldn't do. Absolutely. And the, the thing that we can't take out of the equation is that human element. Um, what you've got to do, number one, is screen. We have got to have processes to where people who are not fit to do this job, first of all, are not offered a job. Um, typically speaking, we'll have over 3,000 candidates apply for the position of police officer. We're generally going to hire about 150 a year. Our process is very stringent just to get to the academy. Then we're going to screen people out during the academy, which is 26 weeks long. Again, when you look at agencies who are trying to be progressive, the state of Georgia only requires that a police officer have 10 weeks of basic training. 10 weeks. We give our folks 26 weeks. Okay, so that's of our own uh, choosing. And then they're going to ride with an officer for an additional 12 weeks. So there's a lot of processes that go into making sure that we remove officers from this uh, profession who don't need to be here. Uh, and so we do follow best practices. We are uh, accredited by Kalia. Um, but, but that being said, there's still more work to do. 
And and so we are, as a result of everything that's going on, we are looking all our, at all our policies and all our procedures to make sure that we're doing things right. How many of your officers live within the communities that they serve? Because that makes a difference when you have a police officer living in your neighborhood. Right, because right. generally speaking, if an officer is living in that neighborhood, he's going to be invested. Um, so percentage-wise, I don't have a percentage. I think it's improved over the years. And we got to remember that a, that a starting salary for a young police officer coming up um, is, you know, it's probably right at $40,000. So can't um, buy a house we, with that. Right. No, no. So, so we have to have affordable housing uh, for these young officers to come in. Um, again, it's improving, but, but that is something we have to continually strive for is to encourage our officers to live here. Um, you know, myself, I live in Gwinnett County. I'm invested in our community. And, and as our folks come along, that's one of the things that we encourage. Well, I'm going to get personal now because that's part of the things. We've been so busy talking about sports. But this, I want, we learn from other people's living. So I want to know, how was the issue of race and discrimination brought up to you in your family? And at what age? And your first experience with being a victim of racism? Wow. Well, for me, it was, it was very young. I was fortunate. I was fortunate, one, to have a mom and dad raise me in the same household. And I remember when I was probably six years old, seven, where my parents sat me, my sister, and my brother down, and we watched every series of Roots. And for me as a young kid, seeing that for the first time, it was so much anger inside me saying how can a white person treat a black person that bad and live to see the next day and as a child I, I, I knew no, no better I was you know I looked at my parents and said hey I'd rather them kill me than live like that and my dad was like son if you lived in that time you would figure it out and you would make the adjustment and you would deal with it and he, then he gave me the whole, you know, the civil rights because I was born just after 65 when, when all that happened. And, and he said, you're here and free for a reason, but it's not over. And when my dad said that, you know, trying to be an elite player, I wanted my dreams was to be a, a different, be a two-sport professional athlete as a little kid. That was my dream. And my dad just him and my mom really sat me down and said, look, son, if you want to play the game of baseball, one, you're going to have to deal with racism, whether you like it or not. So we want to tell you right now, you better learn how to handle it, channel that anger, and remember your dream. Stay in that tunnel and do not let anybody pull you out of that tunnel. So thank God they told me that because as I was 12, 11, I'm the only black kid on the baseball team. And in order to excel and get exposure, you know you got to play on the travel teams. And it's all white on the travel team. So here it is. I'm the only black boy traveling around the country on this travel team. And you better believe how many times I was called nigger, nigger, nigger everywhere I went. As a child. As a child. But, you know, just as Michelle ba Obama said, they go low, you go high. And my dad taught me that. He said, son, you stay focused, and you beat them with your bat. You beat them with your legs. You win the game at all costs, and that's how you get even. 
And for me to learn that very young, I mean, it helped me through life because it didn't stop as a child. I mean, I went to University of Richmond, 3% African-Americans there. So it didn't get any better when I went to East Carolina and all these other colleges, you know, playing in the outfield and, and hearing all these racial names called at me. But I did just that. I beat them with the bat. And, uh, you know, from there, you know, I go on to the pros thinking, okay, I'm this professional athlete now. Maybe it's going to get better. And as a rookie in St. Louis, uh, you know, I'll never forget this. My dad flew into town, and I was so excited to see my dad. But as you know, Bernie, uh, as a player, you have community duties to do for your organization. So that night, myself and my teammate had to judge a contest. So I told my dad, I said, drive my car home. I'm going to ride with my teammate, and we got to judge this contest, and I'll see you tonight. Well, we judge the contest. We leave at 11, 11.30, so it's early, and we stop at a light. And I remember this like it was yesterday. My teammate knew the car beside, people in the car beside me, and roll down their windows, and they're talking back and forth at a red light. So you're not breaking any laws, you're at a red light. I see the police officers, two white officers, sitting there watching as they're talking back and forth, and I'm like, well, we're not doing anything wrong. Light turns green, we make a left-hand turn. This was four or five days after the Rodney King beating, oh, no. okay? So tensions were already high. And we make the left-hand turn, and the lights go on. Now, my teammate, who's from California, has California tags, but we're working in St. Louis where we play baseball. First thing the officer said, and granted, I went to the University of Richmond, uh, sociology, minor in criminal justice. So <laughs> I wanted to be a police officer, FBI <laughs> agent. So I know a little bit about procedures and, you know, protocol. Right, right. So Ray rolls down the window, which he has tenant windows. First thing the officer said, instead of saying license registration, whose car is this? And I'm in the passenger seat like, oh, goodness, here we go. And Ray, well, I, I gave his name, Ray Lankford. Yeah, but yeah. he uh, – he said, it's my car, officer. I live in California, but I work here, and, you know, I ship my car down here f for the season. And the officer got his license, registration, left us sitting in the car for 10 minutes before he even told us what we did wrong. So now the driver, Ray, is getting hot. And me, the educated University of <laughs> Richmond <laughs> graduate, I'm saying, hey, calm down. You're the cool don't, dude. Yes. Don't give this <laughs> officer anything to, to rile him up. Yeah. So I said, let me handle this. <laughs> <laughs> so here the officer comes. This ain't going to end well. <laughs> yeah. No, I know not. this is so not going to end well. The <laughs> officer comes in, and I said, excuse me, sir, could you tell us what we did wrong? And the officer looked at me and said, get out of the car. And now I'm really scared. I'm nervous. I'm thinking Rodney King all over again. <laughs> and I get out of the car, and he said, where's your license? And, you know, back then we had those little fanny packs. So I had my little fanny pack sitting in the car. So I went to reach back in the car. He grabs his gun, and I just put my hands up. Sir, you asked me for my license. It's right there in the fanny pack. Can I get my license? And now I'm looking at his, his partner sitting in the car like this should not be happening. And 
he had to know who I was because I'm on billboards in St. Louis <laughs> as a rookie. And so now I get my license. He looks at my license and said, you're under arrest. As soon as he looked at my license, you're under arrest. And I said, sir, what did, could What'd you tell me do? what I did wrong? Yeah. You're mouthy. And he puts me in cuffs. And now, now, lo and behold, it's like a drug bust. Police officers are coming from everywhere. And the black police officers, who knew exactly who I was, was saying, Brian, what's up? And I said, I asked the question. And they knew what was going on. So now, once, as you know, Chief, they put you in cuffs, they got to take you in. Mm -hmm. And so I'm in a police car feeling like a serious criminal. You know how you stop at the light and, <laughs> and I got my head down because I don't want anybody to see it as me. I get to the station, and then this police officer knew exactly who I was. And I didn't say a word the whole time. And the chief came in and said, look, I, I can't go against my officer, but we won't take your prints. We won't do any of that. The media won't hear about this. Oh. Last famous words out of that chief. Mm -hmm. The media will not find out. I get home. Ray was sitting there waiting for me. I get home to my dad. And I'm crying. I'm in tears, full of anger. And my dad looked at me and said, well, son, you're in the big leagues now. You're mm -hmm. under the microscope. Yeah. Imagine what Hank Aaron and those guys went through. And all I could do was cry the rest of the night. And 6 o'clock in the morning, I was married at the time, my wife calls me and says, what happened? You're all over ESPN. <laughs> <laughs> and it said... Ray Lankford arrested for soliciting prostitutes, and Brian Jordan uh, <laughs> bailed no. him out. Whoa. So you can imagine. Whoa. Yikes. All I know is I went to the clubhouse and said, Ray, I'm glad it was you. <laughs> <laughs> but, man, what an experience. And the chief of police and all came to me and said, hey, we, we want this officer to come and apologize to you. And I said, you know what? You will be arresting me if you bring that officer in there. That's how much anger. I had inside me. So I can imagine with George Floyd and all those guys, you know, that were probably innocent, was going through. And it could have happened to me just as it could happen to every black child out there. So I will never, ever forget that moment, you know. So, so let me ask Jay, that. you know, mm -hmm. that, that brings up something because we hear a lot, uh, Chief, about driving while black. And premier athletes, even now, get stopped just because of the make of their car or because they might have a white woman in the car with them. How do we retrain officers, and, and sometimes it's even black officers who are involved, how do we retrain for people not to think the worst? Because people are afraid sometimes to drive their car through a certain town, part of town because they're gonna get pulled over. And I understand that question. and. You know, hearing experiences like what Brian uh, just described, they're heartbreaking. They really are. Um, and I know that happened years ago, but I can sense and just seeing him that, that there's some real hurt uh, oh, yeah. there. Um, what I will tell you is that law enforcement has made strides on in what we refer to as bias-based profiling. It is specifically um, against protocol to do that. And to your point, what can we do? It is mandated in the state of Georgia that every police officer every single year have mandated training. This is through the governor's office 
um, uh, that type training. But more importantly, I advise citizens to have a voice. If you ever are put in a situation where you feel like somebody has profiled you, and it, and to your point, Monica, it doesn't have to necessarily be a black male. It could be somebody uh, that has a you know sexual orientation different. It could it, whatever the the bias is, is is strictly prohibited for us to seek out and stop someone based on that characteristic, right? So what we need to look at is the behavior of the person. So your you know your driving habits, your, you know you're breaking the law that way. That's that's one thing, but. Uh, to to specifically target someone based on you know their sex their race uh, is, is strictly prohibited and there's mandated training on it every year and so when you have those type of complaints it's important to have a robust internal affairs uh, office and so the the general public a lot of times I'll get questions about internal affairs and they say oh they're they're just going to side with you the fact is we sustain way more complaints than we exonerate someone and and all this is open records you can come and look at it because we're very transparent but uh it, you know officers who are found in in, in an administrative term guilty of bias-based profiling the the likelihood is they're going to be fired that's something that you can't tolerate and even if a sustained complaint is there how then can you keep that officer on how can you trust that person to then go out there and continue to make criminal cases and be unbiased, right? So the hope is that we can stop that type of behavior before it happens. But in the event that we have a citizen that feels like in Brian's case they've been wronged, they need to come forward and let Internal Affairs do uh, an investigation on it. Well, I'm curious. Have you ever been racially profiled? Have you been pulled over? When have you faced discrimination when you're not in your uniform? So it, it's important for me, again, because I live here. When I go out at night and I drive around, nobody knows, well, that's Chief McClure. So it's incumbent upon me to ensure that our officers are trained properly because it could be me, right? It could be my family. Um, as far as incidents that I've had, I'll be honest with you, my parents were, were pretty strict on me. And if there was one kid in the crowd doing the right thing, it was probably me. Um, I remember an incident in Hawaii uh, and I was in the Marine Corps just traveling uh, and we'd stopped in the port for a few days. Um, and, you know, I had an officer, actually two officers that, that walked by us and they had a report of, you know, several black males in the area that were violating the law. Um, and of course, it, in this case, it wasn't us. Um, and so I remember the officer responding and I kind of looked across the street and there were four black males walking on the other side of the street. So I said, well, sir, there's four black males right there. <laughs> and kind of to Brian's point, he was he was pretty curt and short with me and let me know what was going to happen if I if I kept talking. So uh, I, overall, I've been fortunate uh, not to have to endure that. But that that doesn't make me any less sympathetic to somebody who has had to endure it. How about you, Sam? Wow. Um, you know, we we'll, we'll, we'll go from, from the beginning of when we come back from, you know what, I, I'll, I'll say this, profiling. And I've done what I've done in this market for, for about 15, 16 years in, in kind of known quantity. And I was in a, in a municipality or an area not far from here. I won't say where. But I was there to emcee uh, a high school football banquet for that area. And um, I emceed that banquet, and I'm, I'm, I'm in a suit and tie. I'm in my personal car. And I'm driving, and it's foggy. And I pulled off the road to go into the Walmart, and I come out in this car. I'm seeing this car behind me, and I see something on the top of the car, and I'm like, is that like a rack for, like, skis? And after a closer look, I says, no, those are police lights. And this car followed me all the way to the county line. And then turned around and went back. Mm. And I'm like, 
okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and they could see my tag, which Gwinnett, where I live. So they knew I wasn't from far away. They knew I wasn't from the other side of town and went from it, but, but they followed me to the county line and they turned around and went back. And that's been about three, four years ago. But, but, but you know, you talk about discrimination and learning. Um, my goodness, you talked about Roots, and I'll pick up something there. I was a senior in high school when Roots came on, and I'm reminded of it because of what happened with the, uh, the uh, unrest and the things that happened here in town and around the country. And I'm hearing from people, you know, white people I've been acquainted with and friends with for years would reach out to me on Facebook. You okay? Everything all right? You know, because we, we've always been fine. I said, yeah, man. I'm like, <laughs> you know, right. but, but people wanted, uh, were calling us to, to just see if everything was, I said, oh, you, you and I, we've been fine and whatnot. But I do remember the day that I go to school. And my neighbor Birmingham, my family moved to East Point, which at the time was a far different East Point than the one we see now. Um, and the school that I attended was predominantly, predominantly white. And I will never forget the looks on their faces that Monday after that Sunday's first episode of Roots. Mm-hmm. These were folks who had been told that slavery was the stuff you saw in Gone with the Wind and, uh, you know, Song of the South. You know, Uncle Remus and Hattie McDaniel and folk, mm-hmm. you know, right. they, they were slaves, but they were treated nice. Right. And they were happy and they were singing and dancing, you know, but they saw something different that night on that show. And the looks, I wish I had a camera to take pictures of the looks on the faces as I walked the hall of my school that day because their folks hadn't told them. You know, they hadn't told them, and they saw it that night. And so to walk a hall and see that, you know, from people that, you know, and I'm going to class with everything, it was an experience. It truly was. And it's just something that my folks prepared me for. As a native of Birmingham, I, um, I saw my dad go from someone who served in the Army and came back and had to ride the back of the bus if he rode the bus at all, and one day he comes down the bus and he's driving the damn thing. He became someone of the second wave of the first black bus drivers in the city. And, and that's no big deal now. You would say it's about to drive a bus, but in the 60s, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. that was huge. Those men were treated like heroes. And um, my mother, who uh, and they met, by the way, at Miles College, who's outside <laughs> of Birmingham. I always say, no Miles, no me. I owe my life to the school. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, 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 but she couldn't go to certain schools as an undergrad. But um, after becoming a teacher, she was selected for a program for guidance and counseling, and she went to the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa to achieve her master's degree. And that was so special, she took me with her both summers. She wanted me to see it, she wanted me to touch it. Uh, man, you know, that, 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 that was special to go and, and experience that for her, uh, to be able to get a master's degree at a school where the governor stood in the doorway and said she could not go. So the experience was great for me in my home, the people who were right in front of me. I didn't have to read a book, didn't have to watch a movie. I'm thankful that I had two people in front of me that were example that gave me a foundation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just take it seriously. I, I, I truly do. And I'm excited about this time with this movement that's going on. A little, little you know, disturbed about some of, the, some of the violence that took place along with it. But I think at the core, the purpose, and I'm one of them people, I want us to keep our focus on what we are really trying to get. You know, equality, we want to do police reform. I don't know how you feel about names on the, on the pancake box. I don't know how you feel about <laughs> statues and rename and stuff, whatever. You know, I, you know, I see that kind of like a car. You're going to put Under Armour on the tires. I need to go up under the hood. Mm-hmm. My transmission need fixed. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You, you can shine the tires up all you want to and change the names and whatnot, but let's not keep lose the focus of what we're really trying to get to. And that brings up how what I'm noticing with this new group of protesters 
it is it is much more integrated and much more youthful. You see so many more white people involved. There were white people involved during the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. But now there's this generation of white kids who go, uh-uh, how did that happen? When did it happen? Well, um I would never pretend to speak for all white people. (laughs) (laughs) You're our token today. (laughs) You know, I wouldn't pretend to speak for all white, old Christian men either, (laughs) which is what I am. Um, And and, and let me go back very quickly to to answer the prior question. Yes. Um, Obviously, um, as I said to the head of the NAACP, um, in Pittsburgh after all that nonsense with Al Campanis and all the meetings we had. Um, and, and he said to me, I've been black all, all my life. And I said, I would have expected that, and I've been white all my life. Um, so I, I've had different experiences, but I will answer that, that very relevant question, Monica. You know, told the story before as a four-year-old it wasn't race it was religious bigotry I lived in you know blue-collar very poor it wasn't the hood but it was poor you know Thursday I had to wear the same clothes I wore on Monday you know um, and there were kids in my school that wore the same clothes all week and this is in Liverpool this is in Liverpool England it's the major highway for all the trucks to go in it ain't it ain't a pretty area but as council houses, income subsidized houses went, it won the hood and it was pretty nice, you know? Mm-hmm. And at age 11, my dad had started selling life insurance and done really well and we moved to a really nice middle class. So, you know, I get the discrimination that my little four-year-old friend, I can't be a friend anymore because she's Northern Ireland Protestant and her mom is a bigot and says nasty things. Mm-hmm. So you go beyond that. Our family doctor was Yusuf Mansur, an Egyptian African, obviously. And uh, my dad sold life insurance, so he needed a doctor to do the physicals. And so, you know, Dr. Joe, as we called him, did the physicals. So he was a family friend. So, you know, I mean, having someone put the, you know, the, uh, the spatula down your throat, go, oh, say, oh, okay, and, you know, stripping yourself down and coughing and all the other things that little boys had to do, you know, it was an African doctor, you know. So ne- never any thought, you know, of that, thank God. And uh, mom and dad didn't, didn't allow us to think that. And... The stud in high school, high school in England starts at 11, middle and higher together. Our stud, the Jimmy, was, I have no idea what race he was, but he, he certainly had African and some other mixed ethnicity, and he was the phys ed teacher, and he was a stud, and I <laughs> wanted to be like the Jimmy. He was a stud, great athlete. I was a good athlete, so he loved it. My best friend wasn't a good athlete. He hates the Jimmy to this day, you know, <laughs> so... I, I have, you know, I have that role modeling. But, you know, wh- what was the first incident? The first incident, 21, I come to America. I'm a summer camp counselor up in Maine, soccer counselor. And next to the soccer field is the basketball court. And the young guy there, whose name I, I apologize, but 40-something years later, I don't remember. But he was African-American from Chicago. Let's call him Joe. And he and I got friendly. And so one night I said, Joe, I've got a ride. Let's go meet at the top of the camp at 9 o'clock because we could go to the local bar. And my ride happened to be with two white guys from Alabama 
The car pulls up. This is 19. This is 1970, and the car pulls up, and I said, "Hey, this is Joe, my friend. You know, got room? You got plenty of room? You got room?" To uh, no, no, no. We're picking somebody else up, and it was like a hundred feet before you left the camp. So I, I get the distinct impression it's bullshit. I said, "Well, I'm staying. You know, get in the car." No, 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 I'm staying with Joe. Joe and I are gonna get a ride together. We'll get a ride, okay? And Joe looks at me, you know, and he was about twenty-one year old uh, black kid who was, you know, college, in college. He looks at me and goes, "You don't have a freaking clue what just happened to you." And I go, "What just happened?" He said, oh. "No black guys getting in the back seat of a car with Alabama plates." <laughs> <laughs> You know, and wow. sorry, yeah. Sam. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> true. It's true. You know, and so, like, so what happens? And the, the head of basketball shows up, and the head of basketball of the summer camp is John Weidman, who wrote the book My Brother's Keeper and won all yes. kinds of prizes. So the first African American I really had any time with was John Weidman, because he married the daughter of the owner of the camp. Mm. So his mm. the owner of the camp is Jewish. His wife is Native American. They have a daughter, Judy, who marries John Weidman, who writes all these books. And so, you know, I got an Encyclopedia Britannica of, of him saying in 1968 he and Judy got married. They had their, birth certific- their marriage certificates. They're driving down to Florida. They're in South Carolina. They've got a motel room booked. And the motel owner says, you, you know, hey, N-word, you ain't sleeping with that white girl. It's my wife. Here's my marriage certificate. Wow. I don't give a shit. You want to stay here? There's two rooms. I mean, so... It, it, it didn't happen to me personally until, gosh, uh, would have been 20 years later, a little longer than 20 years later. So uh, my, my two oldest grandkids are mixed race. Their dad was African-American, is African-American. I, I apologize for saying Douglas was. He's been in a coma for 12 years, uh-huh. a drug-induced coma. But mm-hmm. my, my former son-in-law uh, is African-American, and... Um, so he grew up in England. He loves soccer like I do. He loves Indian food like I do. We have a great Indian meal. We get in the car. We're driving to see the Rapids professional soccer team, and we get pulled over by a Latino officer. And Douglas does the, you know, license and everything else, uh, step out the car. And I said, officer, why are you asking my son-in-law to get out of the car? It's not your concern. Stay in the car. So I get out of the car, stand up. Now, the officer hasn't seen me. Now he looks over the roof and sees this old white guy, because I'm 50. Mm-hmm. And he's like, what the hell is this all about? <laughs> you know, never answers, goes back to the car, does the license and everything check, comes back, and, and I'm sitting there with Douglas going, chill out. For God's sake, don't escalate this. Mm-hmm. Let me handle it. Right. And so he comes back, and I said, Chief Collier, sir, I am the senior VP of the Colorado Rockies. We deal a lot with Chief Collier, and he will know your name and your badge number. Would you please tell me what my son-in-law did wrong? And he said, drive safely. Gave him the driver's license back and went in the car. So I reported him. Well, yours turned out better than mine, man. Yeah. When you you said, let me handle this. Man, that was... (laughs) Yeah, but there's a difference here. It's yeah. the color. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How it's called. I was an older white guy. I didn't have gray hair. But, <laughs> but that means you. You know, we learned something there mm-hmm. that I think is still applicable today. Is keep calm, get the badge number, get the name, and what else? Should well, you should you record it? 
Because, so, you know, social media these days, yes. we never would have known about George Floyd if it hadn't been for sure. citizens on the side right. of the road shooting Correct. it. So we encourage citizens to record. You should, if that's what you feel comfortable doing. Um, then, then, but, but you mentioned another point there, which is very important. This is what I tell my own family members. If you're stopped by the police, I encourage you to comply. Don't argue the case on the side of the road. That doesn't mean you shouldn't ask questions to get knowledge about what, what your predicament is. But, um, again, go through the traffic stop, comply to the extent that you can, and then follow up. That's, that's the way to deal with it. That's the way I would deal with it if I'm stopped today. I'm going to go through. I'm going to watch the protocol. I'm going to ensure that I'm treated fairly uh, and in accordance with the law. And then if that doesn't happen, then, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with that situation after. But to me, personally, I don't believe in taking chances that could potentially put my life in harm's way or, or the officer's. Um, it's best to comply and then go about the business of, of, of seeing to it through internal affairs or whatever mechanism um, to deal with it. It's always yeah. the best piece of advice I can give any, yeah. anybody. Monica, you asked a great question, and that, you know, I'll give you my f few thoughts and then let everybody else go in, on, and that is why are younger people today uh, you know, and I think Val and I would have been down there protesting if we hadn't got concerned about, you know, the potential for the violence elements of it. And maybe we should have just gone there early and left, which is a lot of what the, the mainstream protesters did do. But I, I think the younger generation, I certainly know my own kids. My, my own kids are all in their 40s. My, you know, I've got a 24-year-old grandson who is mixed race, but he doesn't present as, as looking like he's, he's black. Uh, my 20-year-old granddaughter does more so. And, um, you know, I listen to them. And I, I think, I think I'm not sure that we as parents have done the greatest job raising our kids in some areas. But mm -hmm. I think in one area about um, recognizing that, there, you know, I believe in one God. I believe that we are all brothers and sisters. And how would you ever discriminate? Why would you discriminate against your brothers and sisters? I grew up mm -hmm. in a pretty functional family. You know, my sister and I still fight, you know, <laughs> <laughs> all, all the time. But I love her, you know. And so um, I think when you balance that out, I think younger people today have a better sense of fairness. And, you know, they're, they're more tolerant with sexual preference and sexual orientation. They're more... Pro I think they're more tolerant of a lot of different things. And, uh, and they've grown up, you know, they've grown up with all their peers, parents being divorced. You know, a mixed and blended family. They've grown up with a lot of things that we didn't grow up with. You know, I don't think my mom and dad got along that great because I, I witnessed a lot of the fights uh, as a kid growing up. But, um, you know, today they would divorce. And, and, and I think that... I think we've got a better generation of people and more power to them, and I think that's the most thing I'm most proud of is exactly your observation, is that it was very, very broad-based of the entire community, way more white than a lot of people expected, and I'm sure the APD expected. And I think that bodes well for the future, and you know, later on I, I, think, I think we need to talk about what is the momentum in the long term for Black Lives Matter and not allowing it to get hijacked because it's it's becoming, being hijacked it's being hijacked yes. and it's it's also losing it's losing some of its momentum from the core but mm -hmm. I, I think that's a different discussion 
So that that would be my response back to you. Mm -hmm. I think younger kids are better uh, better than than our generation was, and better than our parents' generation. I'm proud of this new generation, uh, to be honest. To want their voice to be heard, and I have a 28 year old daughter, uh, 26 year old son, and uh, even my 19 year old daughter. uh, They participated. Uh, They even went up to Washington, uh, and you know. Dad didn't approve of it, but, you know, they're grown now. So, But they wanted to be a part of it. Now, you know, the whole monuments and, you know, the Stone Mountain. Uh, again, I'm proud because this next generation, they don't want to be reminded of the past. All they see is the future. And I'm happy about that, you know, because I lived that past. And knowing my history, you know, it, it kept anger inside me where I hope this new generation can move forward and see change happen and, and be a part of something great. And, and like Bernie said, maybe they'll understand what Christ is all about and, and we are brothers and sisters in the end. But right now, to see them in a positive manner protest, uh, like the civil rights movement, uh, that made me proud. And all the violence that happened, it wasn't really done by African-Americans. You know, it was done by Asians, whites, and and that was amazing to me. It was. To, to see all the underlying stuff that, that went on through all yeah. these protests uh, where blacks got blamed. But uh, I'm proud of this new generation, and I think we may see change. You know, it's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of the police officers and the younger generation changing their mindset. And uh, But if we all can work together as corporations and, and, and athletic teams can come together and, and make this happen, I, I think we'll see it. Yeah, you talk about the teams, you know, and they're all making it a point uh, to use their platform. I, I, I couldn't believe when the NBA players were saying, well, do we want to go play in this bubble? It's going to take away from the momentum of the movement. I've said, why would that take away from the momentum of the movement where you can go there and whatever gesture you make can can allow you to use your platform and they've done that very well and all of all of the teams mls has done it nhl the hockey league they've all done something to highlight those things so through sports that's happening i know media takes a lot of hit for some things right now monica but i mean the media once again is the thing that really helped catapult this we think about the the movement we're reminded of john lewis on the edmund pettus bridge and those four little girls that came out of that church in Birmingham, my mother taught two of those girls. And, and those are the things that turned the tide for the Voting Rights Act of 65 is seeing George Floyd, and you couldn't miss it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, through uh. this pandemic, like it or not, everybody was at home. Yep. Uh, you couldn't say I was at work, I didn't see it. You couldn't mm-hmm. say I was at school, I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. You don't have three television networks like you had back in the 60s. It was all over everywhere. And I think that's part of what made this happen. Um, and to their credit, the young people who are running today's movement, they're in multiple places to be able to have those moves go on the streets and cities all over the place and not really have one singular voice. People ask, where is that Martin Luther King? And, and I think they're careful not to have a Martin Luther King because if you take that person away, what happens to your movement? Yeah. You know, if you buy that person, what happens to your movement? It's a series of people, and to me, they've really orchestrated this so very well to get this done. But I'm like you, Bernie. You don't want to get the narration uh, and, and the narrative to be taken away right. and twisted and turned to something else 
Uh, and, and that's the thing that I'm concerned about. And I think that that's, that's, we're getting to something we do need to discuss, and that is quite openly, blacks and whites do not honestly talk about things like Black Lives Matter. Uh, when you say that, I've had people say to me, well, all lives matter. And they I am. They don't get it. They don't get it. Right. And you have to almost do a history lesson. You know, if if black lives mattered, why do we have such a high poverty rate? If black lives matter, why is there such a disparity in health care? If black lives matter, why do we have housing that's just so expensive we can't afford it? If black lives matter, why are more of our black males sitting in jail? If black lives matter, why is the education system set up to still be segregated? How do you have that conversation? When I've tried to have it with people, I can see their minds already ready to argue versus really listening. Well, I'll just give you a quick one white guy's perspective. <laughs> um, and I'll give it to you as a story, because I'm a storyteller. So it's the NBA All-Star Game three, four years ago in New York. Saturday mornings is the news maker breakfast. Diane Stern started it. Um, Kathy Barron's now head of player development programs, community responsibility, keeps it going. It's Gail King. It's, you know, uh, 10 people on the panel, one white guy, Bill Bradley, nine African-Americans. And the conclusion is, we've got to have a discussion. We've got to have the conversation. So I'm sitting there, I don't know if you know Vanessa McLemore, she was a Hawks season ticket holder, she ran ATF, leading uh, one of the top uh, African-American women in the Southeast. She's our good buddy, Van's hilarious. <laughs> so Van's at our table, as she always is at the All-Star Game, and there's two minority owners, a husband and wife, they own part of the Milwaukee Bucks. They're at our table. So I got my hand up, and the microphone goes around. There's about nine questions. Every, qu every microphone is handed to someone who's African-American, and they never handed it to a white guy. <laughs> okay? And I was going to get up and say, you said that we need to have the conversation. Maybe a white guy should talk, right? You know? And <laughs> I'm former chief marketing officer of the NBA, so, you know, I think I'm relatively diverse and, and, uh, and understanding, and I was CEO of the, you know, the Hawks NBA team, blah, 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 blah. And... My question is, you want conversation, but when a white guy opens his mouth up on race, first thing out of a lot of people's mouths, not this group, is what the hell do you know about it, whitey? And mm -hmm. that's what the white people right. are terrified of. Right. You know, I'm gonna get it pounded back, you know where. Right. And, and, I, and I think you have to start with that perspective that you, you have to have comfortable dialogue. Senior VP of our company, Tony Garrett, worked with me at the Hawks, African-American a most senior uh, minority member of our executive staff, and um, he's done diversity forums in our company, you know, which we do on teams, and we're trying to have that dialogue. We've, we've accepted Juneteenth as a, one of the paid holidays for our company as a small token, but it, it's definitely John Lewis. You see it, say something, do something, and uh, I think that's where it starts is we're all afraid it won't end well for a white person saying that. And that's, and I that's, think that's where it starts. It's not yeah, where it and, and that's frustrating because you look at all these corporations where they don't have high executives that are black in their companies, but yet, you know, they will use that black when it comes to community service in the, in the cities. And, oh, yeah. 
And for me, I, I'm a product of that, and, and it frustrates me. And you're right, Sam, I, I have to do it all on my own, and, mm -hmm. you know, to be out in the community to make an impact, to make a difference. Mm -hmm. But these organizations that I played for, you, you're sitting there saying, okay, I'm educated. I played two professional sports here in Atlanta. You want me every time there's a black event going on. Sure. But yet you can't hire me to be in that executive position to take that company to the next level on diversity and community. And it's a frustration. And, you know, I, I try to just, you know, think that it's going to get better. It's going to get better. And, and then not just sports. I mean, even in Fox sports, you know, you know, you look at the corporation ladder and you're saying, wow, I'm the only one here talking sports, but when it comes to marketing and and putting his face out there, no, we we're, we're going to stay with the white guys and 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 make them the face. It's a frustration. You saying yeah. I can I can be a part of it. I can play for you. I can make you billions of dollars. But okay, that's it. We'll, we'll continue to use me. And this is a great conversation I you know had with my hero Hank Earn. You know yeah. who educate. Yeah. Oh, he educated the heck out of me on it, but. You know, but just you say that, BJ. It's just you say that. Yeah, I think this movement is going to bring about some of that as well. And I hope that some of the young people that have been out there in the streets have prepared themselves for some doors to open and some opportunities to come uh, with some opportunities with some upward trajectory, uh, trajectory to be in, in leadership mm -hmm. and, and management roles. Uh, there was something that John Calipari started with some college basketball coaches through John McClendon's foundation. Uh, seeking minority students who have been participating in athletics to get involved in athletic administration. Right. Mm -hmm. They're going to raise some funds and create yeah. entry-level jobs for these young folk and get them in if they, you know, go ahead and, and get involved with it. And it started this month. Right. This is something brand new that, that they've, they've initiated. NCA has a great program, by the way, of minority executive leadership development. Now, one thing I can say I love what the NBA is doing, and it started with Commissioner Stern. Yep. Yeah. Uh, their voices are heard, and, and he brought that about, you know, before he passed away. And then Adam Silver has picked it up and ran with it. Those guys, you know, NBA being majority African-American, they and are working forget, well together. Don't forget to give Stern credit for the WNBA. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Yes. Those women have been very vocal. When you think about women who play the WNBA, these are not folks who get paid millions of dollars to drop out nope. of college after, after a year. These are folks who have college degrees. Degrees, yeah. right. Well, yeah. uh, let me tell you one quick story on, to, on that one. So as chief marketing officer of the NBA, you, I was chief marketing officer of the WNBA and the D League at the time, now the G League. It's 2001. S Sports Business Journal puts out a poll with NFL player image up here, NBA player image in the toilet. We spend hundreds of thousands of dollars with the Greenberg and Associates, the research company that Clinton used for all of his presidential stuff, and that's because Doug Sosnick is our senior VP of communications. Sos ran White House communications for, as he would say, Bill and Hillary. <laughs> There's a message there, by the way. We got it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we bring him in, and I'm sitting next to David on one side, Adam on the other, Russ Granick, our deputy commissioner, and David's effing and blinding at the research and, and all the rest of it. We're like, David, slow down, slow down. This is really good stuff. Eventually it gets to the slide. What's the number one reason? 2001, Brian. 2001, what's the biggest reason by the player image of the NBA was so bad versus the NFL? And it really was AI, 
cornrows, tattoos, right. in his underwear, scrawny little bugger, and phenomenal player and great athlete, but different cat. And so that, that's what it was, right? So we said, okay, what are we going to do about it? And all the, ba- the basketball guys got together, and I happened to be one of the mouthpieces to the union. Uh, we're going to do five things. You will stand still. You will all dress the same. No bouncing balls, no chewing gum. Show outward respect for the anthem because that's what the people want. The head of the union basically cut my legs on everybody else's legs off in the meeting. And um, Michael Jordan was in it because he was the president, not as a player at that time. Michael told the union leader, Billy Hunter, to go pound salt. Mm. And all the players in the room went, we're doing it, we're doing it, we're doing it. We got up and walked away, and I'm walking away next to David, and I go, use. (laughs) 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 And he looks at me and he goes, what? I said, you had that room wired. I said, you didn't talk to Billy Hunter on any of this stuff, and you talked to every one of the players on the committee, didn't you? Which is what Adam does. Adam talks to a group of players every single week. Mm -hmm. That's why they are what they are. So that became part of the uniform code and the behavior for the National Anthem 2001 CBA. And then you see what the NFL's, you know, gets itself tangled up in in 2015 with with Colin Kaepernick. I mean, that's prescience. That's looking, that's, you know, when you're saying about the leadership, unbelievable leadership, but here's a man who the day he took over as commissioner, a very, and I'll tell you off air, who the reporter was for the Boston Globe, you can guess, said, David, you cannot market an old black league. And David said, watch me. But that that, that brings up something. Now, when are we going to get past this business of, Black people play basketball and play football. White people play tennis and golf. And hockey. And hockey. When are we going to get past that? And how do we get past that? You, you talk about somebody who gets frustrated because I don't see any change in the press box, and that's a whole different episode of Oprah, folks. Because <laughs> people, people look at the playing field and they assume that the press box, and it's not. It right. is not. Yeah. And I'm really uh, frustrated when I attend events like tennis and golf for the last 20 years. We, sports been dominated by African-American. In golf's Tiger Woods and the Williams sisters, you know, in tennis. As a matter of fact, with all these European players dropping out of the U.S. Open, it's going to be the Soul Bowl in New York in a couple of weeks. Because <laughs> it's all going to be Venus and Serena and all these young women that, that are coming up behind them. Coco Golf and all. Yeah. You know, so I mean, but I'm frustrated that like this happens. And, and I'll go to NASCAR because I love covering NASCAR. And all this happened with Bubba Wallace. And they wonder what you're doing there. Well, you know what, though? When, when, somebody, when somebody of color, to me, achieves, it opens the doors for opportunities to go into the press and in other, in other phases of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want to be on a crew chief. Do you want to work? You know, those guys that turn wrenches, work on cars and right. whatnot. Not go make some money. Bubba Wallace has opened the door for you to get jobs working in NASCAR. Go get them jobs. And so nobody tells people that that way. That's right. Uh, the opportunities that are there. You know, why aren't you covering tennis? You've had somebody covering for 20 years, but not to dominate the sport. But where you been? Well, you know? it, it all starts, though, back what we were talking about with the youth, you know, introducing these sports and giving them the opportunity, equipping them with the right equipment. And then, Bernie, marketing. They don't see black faces. No. Playing baseball, when it, you see it on TV, the marketing, it's all white players. And they don't see it. So, okay, I'm going to shoot the basketball and I'm going to play football because that's what I see on TV. And that's why the issue of 
why are we losing so many black players in, in, in baseball? One, they're not equipped, and they don't see black faces anymore on the field. And baseball, each team, each market is not doing a good job of marketing to African-American communities. You know, you say we want more blacks to come to baseball games, but what are you doing to make that change? Bring a rapper to the ballpark, a concert? That's not marketing the game of baseball. You know, so. It's not? (laughs) (laughs) It's what what they're doing. (laughs) But that's that's exactly what they're doing. But invest that money in the communities and help these kids understand that we need you back in the game of baseball. So we're going to provide you with every opportunity, equip you to be successful in this sport. Now, see, you're talking about what my last question was going to be is how do you get this inclusion? How do you force companies to see this as being important for their growth, to have this diversity? It's like in your police department, in your county, you've got to have a police department that looks like the county so that means you have asian african-american latino and white we do and but we still have to do a better job of it you know it's a it's an ongoing process of trying to recruit uh and i've never liked the term minorities but but to to represent um our community to look like our community when that's very diverse so even take the asian community um which traditionally at least we found in gwinnett county um, we have not been all that successful in recruiting uh, uh, Asian citizens to our department. So we do go out and do job fairs in those areas. Um, we're at our HBCUs. We're, we're messaging out, look, we need you here. And so every time I get on a, a platform where I can speak, I'm encouraging uh, folks. Because that's the thing. If we want to see change, we're going to have to be involved and be a part of the process. So it's easy to stand back and criticize, but we need young folks in particular to get involved. And this is an honorable profession, believe it or not. It really is, and I've always felt that. Um, and if the more young folks that we can attract to this job, that'll be an agent for change going forward. So we need help with that, that's for sure. Well, you need help with that. And, Bernie, how can we get this these teams? Because, you know, sports is really important to keeping kids in online and in track it's an, an a way to go to college it's a way to have a profession but there are other things in playing you could be a manager you could be the reporter you could be the salesperson. Mm-hmm. but kids aren't exposed to that how do we convince white-owned organizations to bring in black kids hispanic kids to be a part of an of an organization early on I, th- I think a lot of them are doing different things, but they're not necessarily having the impact. If the specific question, Monica, is front office representation, like Brian said, marketing and everything else, is most organizations tend to recruit what you've already got. So people working for you know about the jobs, they start telling everybody else it's networking. Mm-hmm. And we know that one of the single biggest problems with diversity and marketing, because we have the same problem. You know, the core of our company, the Aspire Group's business, is intelligent marketing. It's database management. It is digital marketing to qualify. Here's the offer that Sam wants for Georgia Tech tickets. 
Boom, he gets it. He opens, clicks through some posts. Our kids call him. We then follow up with performance analytics to make sure we did the right marketing programs. It's very sophisticated, very analytical these days. It's not smile and dial, okay? We, are, we have massive initiatives. We have women who aspire, you know, led by Val, my wife, as the senior woman, to try and <coughs> focus on all these different groups to help diversity. But the problem is, overwhelmingly, our applicant pool is white men. Overwhelmingly, we try and broaden that pool. And, you know, we're a relatively small organization, you know, obviously a couple of hundred employees. But we need to do more, as Brian said, and as Sam, I think, said before, and obviously what Deputy Chief said, in terms of going out to the schools and getting kids, really having them see that these are great careers and that they, they are good. The second, that we, you know, we have... Our diversity in our company is the best in the industry, you know, and, and that, you know, so what? You know, we're, <laughs> we're better than everybody else because everybody else sucks. You know, I mean, that, that, that doesn't cut it for me. And, and, you know, our guys in the organization, that's why Tony leads so much of our diversity initiatives. And, and he was resistant. He says, oh, you're going to put the black face out there. I've been there, done that. You know, mm. he, worked, he worked for the Memphis Grizzlies. He worked for the Hawks. Yeah. You know, you show up, there's 200 people. They're all black, and the people up on the, st on the stage are all white leading the group. You know, mm -hmm. we know what this is all about. It, it, it's got to be like we tried to do with the Pirates, with, with a community approach. It's got to be authentic. And it's, it's a lot of work. But you, so what? Do it, because it has to happen. The second problem we have is, and like I said, our... our Diversity numbers look pretty good, but the problem is our really talented minorities get stolen away mm. because they can get paid a hell of a lot more. Mm. And so because there's so few of them, because right. there's, yeah. there's yeah. so few of them, and they're in highly visible positions, you know, when we put them out there, and they're like, "Wow, that kid is really good. Yeah, he's great. Don't you damn steal him away." Yeah. What, I, what can I do? Stand in the way of the kid and give him that opportunity. So regular business and industry will pay a hell of a lot more than sports. Sports does not pay well until you get to the top levels. That's one of the problems with sports. It's not the only problem, and it's not okay. You know, and a guy like Jimmy Leland, when he was manager of the Pirates, would complain that many, many of the better players didn't go back into the minor leagues and spend the 19 years he did to become a major league manager. Right. You know, and uh, I'm drawing a blank on our wonderful manager at, uh, at the Rockies, uh, played for the Yankees, first baseman for the Yankees, Don Baylor. Don yeah. Baylor, you know, yeah. So Don, the, you Baylor, know, Don, Don was a f – we were really close friends, and God rest his soul. And, mm -hmm. you know, but you, you, you look at that. I mean, Don didn't have to go all the way down, but then Jimmy Lindham wasn't a major league superstar. Right. Don right. was. So I, I think there's a, a, lot of, a lot of nurturing and conversation. First off, to make people aware, minorities aware, these are jobs you will excel at. And by the way, most sports teams want not, as Brian said, not just to put the face out there to start with, but you know what? If you get a job because you're the face, take it and then become the best face they've ever seen. Right. Yeah. You right. know, and, and then use that as a way to get in because it's a damn hard business to get in and then take it from there with your own hands. Okay. So yeah. final thoughts from each of you about where we are in terms of race relations and where you want us to be or pray that we'll be in our lifetime? I'm hopeful that it goes forward. I think that the young people who are uh, moving this current movement uh, are ready to have the conversations. 
uh, it's a hard conversation to have. On one hand, people have to like open up and, and open themselves up about things that happened in the past, uh, things that may have been wrong, uh, and how do we make those things right? That's a tough conversation. And, and from the black perspective, we've had all these years to try to get this scab on this wound. We got to kind of rip that scab off in order to get so it, it, it's, it's a painful thing but I'm given a lot of hope by the young people by the diversity and the mix of this movement uh, that continues I've seen white folks saying black lives matter in places there ain't no black folk <laughs> I, 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 and you it's know I, and, and, and that, that, that has just totally been amazing to me places like Iowa and Portland Maine and I'm like what so, uh -huh. so to me that gives me hope that, that, that this conversation will go forward that this next generation will make it happen and we will see the change come Deputy Chief? Again, to echo somewhat uh, what Sam said is, is just hope. Um, look, I, I don't think there's very many people, at least in our age range, that, that aren't concerned about what we see going on today because in some aspects it, it seems like we've taken some steps back. But through the pain and through this anguish is growth, right? So uh, I'm hopeful. I always say, you know, as, as American people, we are resilient. You know, we, we fall down and we pick one another up, and, and that's what I'm hopeful. I'm just hopeful that, that out of this pain that, that we've all endured because we are one, um, that, that there'll be growth, and then we'll get on the backside of this and hopefully be better for it. Yeah, I'm just praying that the younger generation continue the movement and uh, don't lose momentum. Uh, their voices are heard. We have to have more conversations like this, but we got to have them in corporate America. We need those CEOs and those owners and founders to come down and say, let's have this conversation because that's, to me, that's the only way we're going to make progress. And, and that's not just in sports and entertainment. It's, it's corporate business. Mm -hmm. These guys have to see it. They have no black board members. They have, they have to see that it has to change in, for, in order for this movement to continue and you know that like you said we can pull that scab off and forget about the past and know that there is going to be future a future for our kids and bernie i think we've got to i agree with everything everybody said and and again thank you to wealth horizons and business x radio for having us here and ha opening this up this you know the whole concept is continuation has to continue i think we need to really push for two programs one is that every child, because I think if it's a black only, it becomes you know an entitlement program, and then everybody gets PO'd by it. But I would suggest that we off we give ten thousand dollars to every single family with a child, one hundred percent, one hundred percent of it to be spent on Head Start, so that single parent, you know, when you look at seventy three percent of our black population is born into a single parent family, a third of which are teenage pregnant girls it's awful we have to change that what chance does that mom have what chance mm -hmm. does that kid have where the only role models are the pimps and the drugs and I know some of this is stereotypical mm -hmm. and you know I'm not Donald Trump saying every black person walks outside the house they're in danger of their life which mm -hmm. is so offensive and stupid you know it's not that it's for those that are in these circumstances give them right. A, a good quality uh, childcare, feed them, love them, teach them, so that little boy or girl goes to kindergarten and can know the alphabet, mm -hmm. can do elementary reading and count. So they are not behind, because right now they are. And then I think 
to be honest with you, I do fresh before freshman year in high school, I would give everybody a common experience. Every kid in the yes. country, I would take them to these mothballed um, military bases. I wouldn't give them boot camp, military boot camp. I'd give them civics boot camp. I'd make them all have an eight to ten weeks experience. I would pay them minimum wage for it. And if you don't, if you don't participate, you don't, you don't get it. And as a result of that experience, I would then give you a free college education if you went through the boot camp and you can participate it. And you're forced to be there with rich, poor, black, white, yellow, brown, whatever. Because I think the common experience, how, how can you hate someone when you gotta talk to them? And you gotta be in the next mm -hmm. bunk to them in a mm -hmm. cabin. You know, and, and if you do throw punches, you throw punches and then someone resolves it. It's one good thing about boys generally. I've run <laughs> summer camps for years. You know, they knock the crap out of each other, then they put their arms around each other. Right. You know, we got to work a little bit more on the girls. I don't mean to be sexist because they tend to hold some of the grudges. We hold grudges. <laughs> yeah. We get even. <laughs> yeah, 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 you get even. So we've, we've, we've got to figure that out, I think. That, that's, that's, that's what I think we've got to do. We've got to change attitudes at a very young age. And, mm -hmm. and at that age, I think most of the kids these days are way better than that. Well, yeah. I want to say to all of you, you have just been wonderful, and thank you to Business Radio X, and also thank you very much to Dan Miller of Wealth Horizon. We're going to continue this conversation, so make sure next quarter join us. Well, someone else will be here to do this, <laughs> but there will be five other people talking about race and having the conversation. <laughs> 